every uh, speaker knows the danger of the right after lunch uh, speaking slot because that's when your body starts uh, uh, kick, kicking in to absorb the calories that you just had. So I will try to uh, give you a, uh, a, an overview that's informative but also somewhat entertaining. Um, uh, I really have appreciated the invitation from Jeroen and, uh, and also Ferdinand Jespers, who I uh, had the pleasure of providing a guest lecture in one of his entrepreneurial classes for the last couple of years. Uh, so I'm really happy to be here. I think it's a fantastic environment and a fantastic project, the, uh, uh, the Center for Entrepreneurship from Erasmus. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to contribute uh, an overview of, uh, of intellectual property and its value and collaboration. I'll tell you a little bit about myself in a minute, but the first thing I want to say is that I, I think it's a fascinating time to be an entrepreneur. Rarely in, in, in at least my lifetime have the macro drivers for innovation been so clear from uh, environments to energy to nutrition and health and communication and water. Uh, these things are providing very clear signals to all of us, uh, but also very complex and integrated and interrelated problems that require very intelligent and interconnected solutions. It's, it's a good time, though, because the, the innovation that's happening in the world right now is uh, astounding. The pace of innovation uh, is, is, is unbelievable, and the scope of new potential ideas uh, coming from places like uh, artificial intelligence and robotics, uh, from, from synthetic biology, from additive manufacturing, from the, 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 the internet of things, the connected devices. Uh, very rarely have we had such an enormous amount of ideas and development. What this means, though, is that the idea that we can all do it by ourselves uh, is no longer applicable. These are interconnected propositions, and chances are what we're all making is components or pieces uh, of overall propositions that then can solve some of these big problems. And what that means from us is that there's a challenge in sharing the pieces in order to make these value propositions. And I call that the share imperative. The challenge is, of course, that, sh that sharing intellectual property rights it is not and has never actually been easy. Uh, and it's arguably not getting easier. Um, so it's, 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 it's important to understand uh, how intellectual property works. I've made it my career uh, goal to try to, in plain language and clear ways, examine how intellectual property rights work in collaboration and try to find some common tools and methods of valuation, uh, preparing for negotiation, traded intellectual property rights and then working in collaboration in order to make us, help us all come from our piece of value that we have and combine it with your piece of value and be able to make it in, into a value proposition that can get to society faster. And so that's what I'm all about. Um, I've had the, uh, uh, the, the pleasure of being on both sides of the, uh, the, the big company, small company equation. I, I worked for the startup in Denver, Colorado that ultimately ended up being called the Healthy Careers network, which is now the one, one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, healthcare niche career board. Uh, it was purchased by private equity and has recently been purchased by uh, Dice Holdings. I don't know if any of you know Dice.com, but it's a, it's a monster board equivalent type of, uh, type of company. Uh, and I'm real proud of the success that that company has had uh, also after I've left. And I've also worked in a large company setting as a director of licensing strategy for DSM. So I've seen both sides of the equation, and I've seen how important it is to be able to allow both sides of the equation to innovate and to work with each other. Uh, what I hope to give you is the same thing that I give anybody when I look at a business case. I generally ask questions like, how large is the market? What's the size of uh, uh, the, the, the total magnitude of, uh, of the proposition that we might be able to achieve? What are we trying to do? And then we try to drill down a little bit to try to understand what our value proposition is. I'm going to start with some general macro uh, uh, concepts, including some people that really inspire me about collaboration, uh, in order to tell a little bit of story why I think collaboration on the basis of intellectual property is, uh, is so important. And then we'll drill down to some tools, and I hope to leave you with some takeaways with some actual tools and valuation in the way that you can look at your own business case that will be valuable to you. So uh, uh, I hope you uh, enjoy the, uh, 
the journey, and, and indeed I'll try to keep it entertaining. Anytime you start with Charles Darwin, you know that you have started at a big scale, but not a small scale. But I'm particularly ins inspired because what I, what I recognized about uh, um, uh, Darwin, a lot of times he's attributed to have said or coined the phrase survival of the fittest. It actually wasn't Darwin, it was an economist called Herbert Spencer. And Herbert Spencer coined survival of the fittest after reading Darwin's uh, Origin of the Species, and he applied it in an economic sense uh, for what Darwin called natural selection. It took five editions of Origin of the Species, but then Darwin started using survival of the fittest as well. The thing that I think that is interesting about this is that fittest was never intended to be strongest, biggest, fastest, or so forth. It was intended to be the most adaptable and the most able to partner with other players in an environment in order to pass that, those genetic traits forward. And that's also what Herbert Spencer uh, uh, used it in an economic sense. And so I take a lot of uh, uh, high-level inspiration from, uh, uh, from this. There's a few other folks I wanted to mention. Um, Paul Gilding is a, is a guy that I really admire. He's on the DSM Sustainability Advisory Board, and he's also done a TED Talk called The Earth is Full. And basically his message is, climate crisis is happening, and, and global warming is happening. And he paints uh, a fairly dark picture initially as to, as to uh, what, what we're going to experience in the next decades. But his message is actually quite positive, because what he says is, uh, remember what happened after uh, the crisis uh, at the start of World War II for America. In five days, they turned the entire automotive industry in America around to be in a war machine, stopping producing autos. So what his message is, is basically, under pressure, we innovate like crazy. Um, and he says that this is really going to be a big boom of environmental-oriented types of innovation. Um, quote from Paul, right now, global growth is using about one and a half Earths. Having only one planet makes this a rather significant problem. We are headed for crisis-driven choice. We either allow collapse to overtake us, or we develop new sustainable economic models. We will choose the latter. We may be slow, but we're not stupid. It's from his, great, uh, his book, The Great Disruption, Why Climate Change Will Bring the End of Shopping and the Birth of a New World. Leading to necessity-built solutions. This is a guy that has looked at uh, necessity-driven innovation worldwide. Ken Banks, uh, quote from Ken. Innovation out of necessity has given Kenya, for example, a world-leading position in mobile payments. On a continent where hundreds of millions of people lacked bank accounts, mobile phones provided the answer. An estimated 40% of Kenya's GDP now works its way through the Safaricom invasive system. So he is examining what happens when you have global systems and local need, and how do those things partner to really innovate. Meeting complex interrelated uh, problems. Uh, Judith Rodin was the first woman president of an Ivy League school in the U.S., University of Pennsylvania. She now is the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Rockefeller Foundation is a 100-year-old foundation that helps communities in stress, um, and they do some fantastic things. Her uh, vision is extremely collaborative, and she mentions it in this way. The crises that we face today are more nuanced and much more complex than in the past. They're huge in scale and scope with no regard for man-made borders, and they're inextricably linked. She quotes uh, Arthur Jeffrey Conklin, uh, calls this the new brand of interconnected global challenges, wicked problems. Despite their complexity, these crises also present us with great opportunities. These are the big drivers as to why we need to collaborate with each other. Small company, big company, and everything in between. This guy you might know, Michael Porter. Uh, his uh, latest level of thinking is called creating shared value. He's even got an institute around it, and his concept is uh, we, we no longer are tasked as companies to, uh, to solve uh, 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 insignificant problems. We really are working to create real value of society and then share that value. And that value can be shared with society when a product or service gets to the marketplace, also can be shared uh, through the value chains. For Michael, uh, society's needs are huge, health, better housing, improved nutrition, help for the aging, greater financial, financial security, less environmental damage. Arguably, these are the greatest unmet needs in the global economy. Sharing value creates economic value for the corporation through innovations that address society's needs and challenges. It's, it's innovating through the use of new technology 
and management approaches as a result, increasing companies' profitability, productivity, and expanding markets. I know there's a few IP professionals here. This is someone you might know. This is Judge Randall Rader of the, uh, uh, the Federal Circuit uh, Courts in the U.S. And this gentleman, as well as a handful of other colleague uh, judges, see a tremendous amount of intellectual property cases in the U.S. And he's been very instrumental in a number of ways of shaping cases, case law. And one of the things that he always comes back to is the collaborative power of intellectual property. And he speaks a lot and has made a lot of decisions on valuation also. Valuation in a shared model. In other words, you two are fighting now, but had you not been fighting, had you done a deal in the past, what would that deal actually look like from a shared value standpoint? Um, quote from Judge Rader, the era when one company could gather together the expertise necessary to create technology and exclusively provide the improvements to that technology into decades ago. Today, the company that succeeds is one that cooperates. The patent system has ensured that the pursuit of technological advancement can be a worldwide venture. I really like watching this guy. It's fantastic uh, how he manages uh, extremely complex cases. This is a gentleman that's, a, that's perhaps a little bit more accessible. He's an INSEAD uh, professor. He's also an ex-McKinsey uh, 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 consultant, and he is uh, uh, guest lecturing, not guest lecturing, he's doing it routinely with the Amsterdam Institute of Finance. Uh, the course I took from him was called Advanced Valuation, hands down the best course I've ever had. It's a fantastic uh, uh, way to look at the very foundational roots of what is value. And what Kevin um, uh, really takes a look at is uh, there, there, there really is not a place for beliefs and opinions and even assumptions in business cases. Only hypotheses that you prove and don't prove. So he's really a observe and use data in order to figure out valuation. Uh, quote from Kevin, as we have said repeatedly, there, there are no definitive answers in business, only questions. Creating value, therefore, comes down to asking the right questions. By asking the right questions, you gather the right data. By gathering the right data, you create the possibility of gaining meaningful insights into the real value drivers. By gaining such insights, you enable real learning. Um, I took a, a big piece of inspiration from Kevin because he, he, he has a firm belief in the message that for any given piece of intellectual property or value proposition in general for a particular context, there is a value and it is a number. It's just that we don't know it, nobody does. And he, he is constantly striving to try to find out what that value is. And I really like that approach. Finally, Garrett, um, uh, uh, Garrett, if you are aware that uh, 10, 15 years ago, there was a discovery of low dosage aspirin could really affect in a positive way an impending heart attack or cardiovascular disease. This was Garrett Fitzgerald. Uh, he moved from Ireland uh, to the US in 1980 or so and has been given many awards in cardiovascular uh, pharmacology and uh, uh, is a fantastic collaborator. And uh, I want to see if I can find his quote because I wanted to mention that to you. Garrett uh, recognized that one of the problems in, uh, especially in the pharma world of collaboration, is a big company, small company phenomenon, and also a big company, university phenomenon. Too many innovations are locked up in universities uh, and not being accessed by large companies, and too many large companies were searching for their own molecules and not accessing in a good collaborative way small companies and universities. And I think that that is a trend that is changing now because it's becoming much harder for pharmacies or for, uh, for pharma, big pharma to, uh, uh, to innovate and discover on their own. So this is a little bit of a, the broad pathway to coming to the, uh, uh, the, the conclusion that we really need to try to invent things for ourselves, protect things for ourselves, make sure that they are proprietary when we can, defend them when we need to, but be prepared to share them work towards getting rid of some of these stubborn inefficiencies. Anybody know the origin of the word patent? It's Latin. Patera. A lot of people think that it means to protect, because that would be logical. 
but it actually doesn't. It means to make available for inspection. In effect, it means to share. And I think that's an interesting uh, view on what intellectual property is. The share imperative, uh, I've broken down into four different areas. The first we've talked about, which is no one really does this alone anymore. There's a foundational drive to work with each other to be able to solve very complex problems, more complex problems than we've seen before. Uh, the second is the IPR share, balancing mine and the rest of ours. What actually can be proprietary for a period of time, and then what needs to be shared uh, for the broader expansion of knowledge and uh, development of, uh, of society. And the functional share, what exactly is a license? And then finally, what I hope to leave you with is the practical share, learning about valuation and using some tools to be able to figure out, okay, what is it that I have and what is it worth so that you can put together a valuable negotiation proposition and negotiate with confidence. Interconnected driving forces of innovation. We've talked about right. these. Collaborative solution complexity is growing. You see these kind of messages all over the place these days. The former head of the FDA saying, hey, we need more early stage collaboration for the reasons that we were just talking about. From The Economist, rise of collaboration thera therapy has brought a flurry of cross licensing. Companies striking deals to sell each other's drugs and carefully calibrated cocktails. Airbus advertises more than 380 of its own uh, patents involved in uh, a 380. Uh, certainly there's more than that. Uh, Boeing has 1,000 in the Dreamliner. Imagine if you include the number of patents related to the suppliers of these organizations. Both of these planes are famous for having an extremely detailed supplier network. And then how many licenses have been closed? How many permissions have been laid between these parties? Development in public-private partnership uh, with the European Commission and, uh, and the Department of Energy in the U.S. and a variety of other organizations. They're generally for good propositions. There's money available. There's also help available and support, but it's important to understand how those uh, collaborations work because that's another type of uh, relationship. And there's a lot of experts there to be able to help you with those. Uh, market expects new developments. Nearly continuous new products or software from, uh, from Apple, on an ongoing basis, I wanted to mention one of those. Uh, I say collaborator fights for both. Uh, what, um, there's, a, there's a couple developments in the smart, uh, smartphone wars which are quite interesting. You all mentioned that sometimes that's where people start when they start learning about intellectual property. What happened about two weeks ago uh, in the smartphone wars? Quite foundational. That wasn't wasn't the announcement of a new lawsuit. That wouldn't be so interesting. Apple won the lawsuit against Samsung. That uh, yeah, that happened. But that happens, and then Samsung wins, and so yeah. forth. But but indeed, that was a continuation. I think of the lawsuit that started that billion about a year and a half ago. Uh, that's not the one that I was referring to. Yeah. The one from WhatsApp and Apple. Also. There's a, there's a famous picture, um, there's several of them actually, if you look it up, where they tried to draw the lines of all the lawsuits between all the players. Uh, have you seen this one? Look it up if you can. It's, it looks like an amazing spaghetti ball. It's, uh, it's unbelievable the amount of lawsuits going on. But what I'm referring to happened about two weeks ago, and it was a different message altogether. Apple and Google said they were going to stop suing each other. They didn't say that they were going to license each other yet, but they said they were going to stop suing each other. And if you remember, uh, some of you probably are, are followers of Steve Jobs, if you remember him, he considered the Android to be a stolen project, a product. Uh, so the fact that they finally decided to stop suing each other is quite interesting. Why do you think they did that? What's that? <coughs> Well, I think they might continue to sue each other for monopoly protection. Mainly because they both are monopolists within a total different market. One is like software and the other one also software. Mainly device based. 
I obviously don't have a direct connection to Apple or Google, so I can't state on behalf of them, but I think it's too expensive. Uh, I think that eventually uh, you, you have to wonder what is the broader goal that we're doing here. And so that, that's, that's, uh, uh, that, that is a direction that I got a, a, a very nice boost uh, of, of, uh, uh, of positivity that came out of that. Again, they didn't decide to license everything to each other, so I'm sure the business people and the lawyers are still very busy with this. But simply the fact that they said, okay, we're not going to fight anymore in courts. We're going to try to make these things work. Still will probably involve arbitration and all kinds of different negotiations and so forth. But it's an interesting step. I say collaborate or fight or both. Um, 2011, uh, for uh, the parts of an iPhone, DRAM, dynamic access, uh, random access memory, um, flash, and uh, the, uh, some of the applications processors. Who do you think those came from? Largest supplier Samsung. for the iPhone? Samsung. Samsung. Yeah. And that changed. So uh, you got a handshake over here, and you're pounding each other in the face and the, with the other hand. But that 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 changed, and they were no longer the largest supplier for a while until just this past year. And I picked this one up. Despite the two companies' better legal battles, Samsung becomes the largest supplier of iPad displays in the first quarter of 2014, according to two display search. Market researcher and Samsung Display reclaimed its position as the top iPad display panel supplier, shipping 5.2 million units of 9.7 inch panels. So Samsung is again the number one supplier of at least one big component to iPads. That's the nature of the interconnected world that we're working on right now. We're defending, we're fighting, we're collaborating, we're licensing, and we're sharing. And that's the reality that all the entrepreneurs have to work in, all of you have to work in as well. And finally, new frontiers are already here. Robotics, additive manufacturing, data analytics in the cloud, the Internet of Things, digital meets DNA, and so forth. These things are, by definition, major new propositions. Uh, also, some cases without a lot of uh, case law uh, regarding intellectual property. So there's going to be some really uh, strong ethical questions, a lot of business for the courts and things like that. But these things are so big and so interconnected, they're collaborative by nature. You only have to Google a little bit and you can really find these anywhere you want to go. Uh, it's quite fascinating if you find yourself a couple hours just to Google licenses, just to see who's working with each other and see what they've, uh, how they're working with each other. Uh, I find this, I get a lot of energy out of this because these are successful collaborations, at least from the point of the, 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 uh, the press release. Sometimes they don't always work. This is... Uh, from uh, Henry Chesbro, he compiled, compiled this information, but I thought that it's really fascinating to look what has happened in the last few decades regarding R&D as well. In 1981, companies with 25,000 employees or more had 70%, this is the US, I don't have the full world, but this is the US, had 70% of all the research happening and small companies at 4.4%. And in these 30 years, that percentage has halved, and that is fivefold. So that's also what's happened in the research. It's becoming distributed. We're all having pieces of this, and we're all having the opportunity to contribute. But we're all also learning the skills of being able to collaborate with each other once I have a patent, or once I have know-how, or I have a trademark, and so forth. And that's, I think, where, uh, where we have to keep learning. Sharing knowledge is often not simple or efficient. Try to make some speed here so that we'll spend a little bit of time. Um, these are sometimes called trolls, non-practicing entities. This is a phenomenon from the last few years, and it's quite dramatic. Uh, even the, uh, the US, uh, the White House has started to um, uh, pick up and take action with these, uh, uh, these entities. Let's see if I can give you a quote there. This is from uh, whitehouse.gov. How big of a problem are patent trolls? Consider this. Last year, we estimated that patent trolls sent out over 100,000 demand letters threatening everyone from Fortune 500 companies to corner coffee shops and even regular consumers to pay a settlement or face their day in court. The number of suits has exploded. The difficulty with these folks is it's not necessarily the value of the underlying patents, but it's the threat of litigation and the costs involved with litigation. Defense is expensive. Also, uh, uh, as an entrepreneur or, or a small company, uh, 
simplifying and, and accessing a good professional to help you in writing good patents and providing and in prosecuting those through a number of countries it gets very expensive very fast. Uh, and I fully understand that. There's constant changes in what is patentable. There was a case in the US called the, the involving a company called Myriad, which had to do with what was patentable from a genetic standpoint. Uh, ultimately, it went to the Supreme Court, which I think in this case it should have, and they decided that human genes are not patentable. However, derivatives uh, with certain modifications that are artificial could be patentable. And that is uh, uh, a lot of uh, the, uh, uh, the life sciences industry uh, trying to catch up and figure out what this really means. Court battles probably hasn't ever been a set of patent cases as lucrative for lawyers as the smartphone wars generated hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in legal fees. A few others, uh, compulsory licensing. This is an interesting case uh, that has everyone in the intellectual property world watching India uh, because a number of companies in India have taken advantage of a 2005 patent law which basically says if a certain population is not being served under reasonable, uh, uh, reasonable remuneration, reasonable royalty, uh, that there's an opportunity to apply for a compulsory license from the company. The company Natco got such a license from a bear product. The bear product would be put in the marketplace at roughly 6,000 US per month. It's a cancer uh, product. Uh, and Natco was able to uh, get access to a license for that product and put it in the marketplace for about 200 uh, per month. So this is a very hot space for uh, intellectual property professionals. And then finally, IP transactions are growing complex. Um, there was a big transaction earlier this year from GlaxoSmithKline and Novartis. Anybody hear about that one? This was uh, a, a, a huge uh, asset swap. Uh, so it wasn't traditional M&A, even though it was handled as if M&A, but it was essentially a, a cancer portfolio for a vaccine portfolio between these two big companies, also involving animal health and Eli Lilly. Uh, but these types of transactions are happening more often. It's, it, even in cases where I simply buy a big piece of business from you, sometimes you are retaining some rights for the use of the intellectual property that's in there. So understanding how that works is, uh, is really critical for M&A as well. And then finally, lots of valuation variations. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a quote that I've, uh, that I've heard, which is, I, I know what I've given you, but I don't know what you've received. Valuation of intellectual property can often be in the eyes of the beholder. And that's why it's so important, and one of the things that I really consult a lot on is taking a look at the other person's shoes. What is it that they've received? So the foundational puzzle of proprietary rights, uh, it's a micro but also a macro puzzle. If the smartphone wars have taught us anything, it's that cooperation in the form of cross-licensing deals and not litigation will be the only economically rational way forward. And that's why I'm excited about the Apple and Google uh, conclusion that they've come to. To share or not to share, this is also a micro uh, idea and concern from an entrepreneur's standpoint. Do I try to keep it to myself and keep people out? And how long can I manage that these days? Remember the 20-year monopoly from the patent is harder and harder to come by from from the new polymer or new molecule and so forth? Or do I protect it in a very good way and then invite people in to be able to, to share it in certain ways? So the IPR share, this is the, uh, the trip way back. We talked about the, the, the origin of the word patent. There's some debates in IP uh, circles on where the first patent was. And I think Venice uh, gets a lot of credit for this, but there's, this one also comes up. Uh, a, a gentleman named John of Utnyam in 1449 uh, was around uh, when Henry VI was uh, the king, and he had a glassmaking process that wasn't yet known in the UK. Uh, the king was a fan of Eton College. He was, uh, he was um, uh, essentially the protector of Eton College and supporter, and he gave Utnyam a 20-year monopoly to put all the glass in the, in the uh, college, and especially the, uh, the, the chapel. Uh, but he required him to teach the process to others. And that's where you see the foundational share in intellectual property that is inherent in the patent system and other, other uh, forms of intellectual property. Uh, there's a certain repayment uh, that you can have for the innovation itself. Uh, but in the long run, the innovation needs to be societies. 
I love this graph. This is from The Economist. It took me a little while to absorb this, so I'll try to explain it. Seems like you can find many, many of these hockey stick types of graphs for either uh, carbon, uh, carbon dioxide or other areas. But this is econ total economic output in 1990 dollars on the dark graphs. And so that's the total of the, total, the, the, the 2010 years. And the blue is total number of years lived. So you do get population growth, pretty substantial population growth in the 20th century. But what you get is an even more substantial uh, level of economic output. Uh, now this is not new to any of us because this is industrial revolution and so forth, but what I would like you to think about is what happened back here when you came up with a good invention. Let's say that I had the invention of, uh, of, of helping water roll uphill, which is pretty useful back then because the castles were all uphill. What happened? I showed, I showed my whole village uh, uh, that I could make water flow uphill. Nobody ever seen it. Yeah, you got to knock on your door, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And chances are you got an invitation, you might have even gotten a nice dinner, uh, but you might not have had any more dinners after that because the king probably doesn't want any IP leaks, I suppose. So it probably wasn't good for your family. What did it do for the motivation on everybody around in your village that knew that you came up with a great uh, invention to make water and you never showed up again? I'm not doing that. So that's essentially the human condition all the way until uh, the, uh, the 16th, 17th, 18th uh, uh, centuries. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm married to a, uh, to a wonderful Dutch woman, and this is, uh, this is also the way that I think many, uh, many uh, uh, Nederlanders like to see the world, but this is, this is the way the world really was uh, in, the, uh, in the 16th, 17th century. This is the VOC. Um, some of you may be VOC uh, aficionados, but uh, what, and there's a number of things the VOC is famous for, but what is one that usually comes back in economic terms? Transporting devices. Yeah, that's, that's the business they were in. But where did they, uh, uh, how did they manage to get the, the scale in order to be able to do this? Slavery probably was there as well. The one I was looking for was, uh, was indeed, uh, they, they were the, the first uh, entity on a large scale to be able to issue shared stock. So they went uh, along the canals, and I want to say those were average people, they probably weren't average people, but they certainly were people that felt comfortable in putting their money into this company knowing that they were going to get something back out of it. And the reason that I bring that up is that this follows along with the same concept of a patent and a license because they had a certain license and they could issue a certainty that you have a shared stock and you were going to get a return for your money or you're going to get a loss, but that was the way that the VOC was able to build uh, and achieve everything that it did in the course of 200 years. I thought it was very interesting um, to see the word patent in the original name of the VOC. Uh, and I also think I, I know that um, in, uh, in World War II, you could ident identify yourself as a true Dutchman if you could say Schreveningen correctly. I think that this one is even much harder than that. General Verenigde Geachtor de Company. But the word patent's right in the middle of it, which meant that it was permitted and it was authorized, and this organization had a certain right to do things that other organizations didn't have. And that's when you really start seeing GDP taking off. So what can be proprietary and thus an asset? Um, I'll spend some time on these, but uh, from an entrepreneur's standpoint, I think you're really looking at the know-how that you really have and how you do your business. And perhaps, indeed, you might be able to have uh, something that is innovative enough and meets the requirements of the patent. Patent and patent applications, um, in a very general sense, uh, an, an, an approved patent, uh, once, it is, uh, once it is issued, can give you a 20-year monopoly. Uh, for that, that particular invention, and there are certain criteria, both in the US and Europe, which are sli slightly different from each other, but more or less uniform regarding novelty uh, and inventive step or non-obvious uh, element in the patent, uh, which you need professionals in order to be able to help you to do that. It can be a very, very powerful tool, not only for yourself and keeping others out, but also for trading. Trade secrets um, are what you might keep to yourself, 
Coca-Cola holds a, holds a very interesting place in intellectual property because it's one of the most used examples of two of these. Um, what do you think they are? Secret formula and trademark. And trademark, yeah. So they, they've got one of the most used examples of a, uh, uh, of a trademark, one of the most valuable in the world, of course. I don't know if it's the most valuable, but it certainly is worth billions. Uh, and then also a trade secret, uh, which they have kept secret, I don't know how many years now, but it must be close to a century, if not longer. And they've managed to keep that a secret. Uh, there are different forms of protection that you use in order to be able to manage these, uh, these things, um, and different systems to enforce as well. But the idea behind it is that the underlying value of the asset versus alternatives, and also combined with the related legal strength, gives you a commercial contextual value of an asset. Um, there's an interesting one in copyrights. Um, everyone who's a parent knows the power of Disney. Uh, but in the early 1990s, um, a copyright was valid for uh, 50 years past the death of the author, or 70 years, past, 75 years if it was a corporate uh, mark. In 1928, there was a film called Steamboat Willie, which was the first appearance of Mickey Mouse. And so in the early 1990s, Disney was faced with a, uh, the, the potential loss of Mickey Mouse as a copyrighted uh, uh, icon of the company in 2003. And in order to do something about that, they enlisted a, uh, a Hollywood uh, uh, person himself, Sonny Bono, and they lobbied the government until they got an extension of 20 years on both of those. So copyright generally now in the US is 70 years past the death of the author, or 95 years on a corporate mark. And so 2023 is the year to watch to see what Disney does again. And right after Mickey was uh, the loss of uh, Minnie, Donald, and Goofy, I think. So they're following up right up, uh, right up after that. The functional share, what exactly is a license? We sign licenses all the time. And the elements of the license, I'll go a little bit fast on this. I like to usually, usually spend some time on this, but uh, we're going to run out of time. Ownership. You think that that's really clear, but in the intellectual property world, that's not necessarily clear. And that's why you really need professionals to help you do what's called freedom to operate searches to find out what is there before and, uh, and really understand the strength of what it is that you think you own, because it might not necessarily be yours. But when you have ownership and then someone else has an interest to use it, and you've got the foundational, uh, the foundational elements in giving a permission or perhaps having something valuable that you can exchange. If I take someone's car, I have the interest to use it, certainly, but I didn't have the ownership. Now here comes the re regulatory part, ability to stop use. If I take the car and I make it to back to Maastricht, we fall under common regulatory authority, Dutch authority, they can probably get their car back. But even though uh, the ownership is there, the interest to use is there, and the ability to stop use. What if I make it to Istanbul? Or what if I make it to uh, Delhi or even further, uh, uh, Vietnam or so? Ownership's still there, interest to use is there, but the regulatory authority bridging both of these locations is weaker. And that's also why you really have to look at the legal rights of intellectual property and understand how valuable it can be for you. But once you have these, you have the ability to take one asset and divide it in certain ways. If I took the car on a Friday afternoon, perhaps it's only on a Friday afternoon when the sun's shining that I wanted to use it. And perhaps that's a deal that we could strike on that afternoon. And if you divide seven days by half, you have 14 different units of potentially being able to work, uh, work out a deal. And then you have the basic, uh, the basic concepts of um, uh, business modeling, being able to help you in working with each other, this is, uh, this is an idea of, hey, I've got a concept and I can use it for application one, but I don't want to use it for application two, or I want to let someone use it only for one, and I want someone else to use it for, for another right. This is what you can do with valid intellectual property. And the same thing for working in joint development, partnering with someone to put your technology in and then having, uh, uh, having it be shared with the results. And there are many of these that you can do. Provided that you have strong intellectual property, and I can't emphasize enough that you need good advisors to be able to understand what it is that you actually have or don't have. But these can get really creative. This is where I get a lot of energy from, because you can, you can really accomplish a lot of different types of things that you might want to do. 
different partners in different geography jurisdictions. These are the things that you can do when you have access to some rights and you can give permissions. Keeping in mind that there's much more to a business, of course, than just the intellectual property. How, how proven is the technology? What's the next best alternative? That's always critical to understanding how valuable your overall business is. Supporting services, and do you have a capable partner? So intellectual property has value, but in a certain context. And that context is not the intellectual property itself. That context is, is it used in aerospace or automotive? Uh, is it used in a hot climate or a cold climate? Uh, is it used uh, with uh, a qualified scientist or not someone that doesn't know it yet? Uh, these are the things that you really have to validate in the general validation of your overall business. Finally, the practical share, and I'll go kind of fast on this one so that we uh, can wrap up on time. <coughs> Grading delta and IP valuation. The concept of delta is basically, have you really created value? Uh, are you really putting something out there that is better than what is there before? There's three general ways of, uh, accepted ways of valuing intellectual property. One's called the market approach, which is essentially comparing your business case with the use of intellectual property compared to one that is similar. The challenge of this approach is that, by definition, intellectual property is unique. And so it, having an exact same similar case is hard to come by unless you have real repetitive, uh, repetitive types of uh, transactions. The cost approach. Cost approach can essentially measure how much cost you have expensed in order to be able to come up with the uh, invention that you have. But it uh, doesn't necessarily tell you what it's worth when someone is using it. And then the income approach is income approach is essentially taking all the assumptions for a future uh, uh, scenario development and trying to understand how your business is going to develop on the basis of those assumptions. How many units are going to be sold, at what price, how fast you're going to be able to launch, what types of expenses do you have, when you're going to expand to a new market, and so forth. And this is the approach that is generally used by uh, intellectual property valuation professionals. This is, uh, uh, this is a storyline of uh, the courts that are extremely busy with valuation topics right now especially in the US, but also in Europe. Um, the, the basic overview here, without going through each of these cases, and they're not all cases, and the first one is in the, uh, the federal, uh, called the, the US Code. Uh, it's in the federal laws of the US, which dictates that a settlement will, can take place, but it won't be anything less than a reasonable royalty, with the term reasonable royalty to be determined by the parties. But a lot of others, including Judge Rader, are coming with the conclusion of, hey, I need economic evidence to, to, to demonstrate uh, how much market demand has actually been there for this particular innovation. And many others are uh, coming with the idea of uh, incremental value of the intellectual property. In other words, you can't protect a Mercedes by uh, saying that you have a unique valve stem. Uh, you have to look at what the individual value of that particular invention is based on the claims of that invention. And that's a very common theme in courts these days, and it's very useful because it also can help you in, in determining what the incremental value of the proposition that you have is when you go to partner. Are you really making things better? Starting with uh, the basic proposition that you think stronger, it lasts longer, safer design, goes faster, better process. And then I used to keep a card like this in my wallet because I think that this is, for me, is kind of the true north of value. This isn't necessarily value itself, but if you can demonstrate that you can enable a premium price, uh, you can save time by going faster with your proposition, you can lower costs, or you can increase uh, share, um, market share, these are things that indicate that there could be a lot of value there. And these are the things that you can also hold up to yourself to hold yourself honest uh, that, hey, am I really creating something better than the alternatives that were there before? But once you do that, you can then work into a uh, profit and loss statement. For your businesses, are you already working with, uh, with P&L and, uh, uh, and this kind of cash flows and so forth? Yeah. And your budgets and budgets and so forth. The idea behind valuation is essentially P&L over multiple years over the course of time, considering the opportunity costs, so taking into consideration the time value of money as well.
But these things you'll find in a P&L. Your process is essentially like this. This goes back to the idea of sharing. Uh, this is the case as it was before. So this potentially could be you and your partner before you launched your product. And this is the way that it could be afterward. A delta is what you've improved on the basis of premium price, saving time, gaining share, and so forth. But by doing an evaluation this way, as opposed to looking just at your own case as it is, you can then say, hey, we're creating 100 euros of value. And from that 100 euros of value, we're doing that together. You can then say, okay, now 30 or 40 of it is mine, the rest is yours because you're doing most of the work. And this is a completely different conversation than saying, hey, my, my, uh, my product costs 30, uh, 30 euros, please buy it. This is a partner conversation whereby you're actually also demonstrating how much value you created for the other party. Validate, validate, validate. Uh, this means you really have to know all the assumptions in your case. And in a negotiation, if you don't know those, those will be apparent. So you really have to understand how many different people are going to buy it, what markets are you serving, uh, are there cultural problems with your, uh, with your product, are there regulatory issues that are going to come up, all these different types of things. And these often are so broad that you can't cover them with one or two people. This very, it's almost always takes a team to be able to evaluate this case. And then finally, build into assertions uh, to negotiate. But this method gives you a certain certainty in negotiation that you can manage. MSS, LAS, and Batman as the maximum supportable solution in the negotiation, the least acceptable solution. And a bad is what are you going to do if the negotiation breaks down? It's called the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. This is concepts that have been taken over by, uh, by, by Harvard from a book, uh, Get Into Yes, which is a 30-year-old book, but still a very, very good one regarding the negotiation. But you can't do any of this unless you have improved something, and you can demonstrate that. Got to have the goods. Um, I have mentioned this because I think it's always really valuable if you can illustrate the, uh, the, the case, then you can also explain it in a better way. This is a hypothetical pharma example where you have um, uh, uh, milestone payments potentially before you go into development, uh, and then your development happens uh, in, uh, in low revenues, high expenses at that point in time, and then you potentially launch a drug. If you can demonstrate that you potentially have a better product or device, you might earn higher milestone payments, you might have more likelihood of making it through development instead of failing in development, and you might get the opportunity to do more repetitive uh, products. And from these, you can take this proposition and you can work this into a model whereby you can show a before and after. This is a hypothetical materials model, but this is the power of not just your own P&L that you're looking at, but look at your P&L in the context of what have you incrementally improved over what was there before. And even better if you can do that with your partner. So in this case, a higher price, uh, larger volumes, uh, less depreciation, and uh, uh, lower cost of uh, input materials. So this is an opportunity to take some of these assumptions you have and work them into a model whereby you can get numbers. And from those numbers, you can then negotiate. And then finally, you can do a lot of scenario building. There's a lot of, uh, uh, of, of tools out there regarding data analytics, uh, Monte Carlo analysis, and so forth. My only reservation with those tools, they're fantastic, but don't use them too early because you can build beautiful Excel spreadsheets but not have your finger on the real value. Um, and by doing it this way, you can really understand the value, have it tested, validated, and then do some scenario analysis to see where you're strong and where you're not. Anybody know this case, this, uh, this painting? So the original thought is that uh, you destroy a painting, how much value do you destroy? When in, in fact, uh, she created something that wasn't there before. And there's, a, there's even a, uh, a, a number of, um, of blogs from uh, very high level intellectual property people. I'm very interested if any of you have any uh, concepts arguing about who actually has the rights here. Because this is, a, this is clearly a, uh, a painting that wasn't hers. Uh, she argues that the, uh, the priest knew what she was doing, but there was no revenue streams associated with this painting. There was no one coming in the church. Um, even as far as uh, prompting low-cost airline Ryanair to offer special fares to the nearby town of Zaragoza, 
Church officials decided to keep the fresco as it was and introduce an entry fee one year on. Some 57,000 people have paid uh, one year to see the restoration according to the foundation that manages the church. What I like about the story is what I just read literally on uh, last night and looking this back up again. Jimenez, who first demanded her share of the takings in September of last year, has now reached an agreement with the foundation over her work's image rights. The pensioner is entitled to 49% of the profits generated from merchandising of the restored Eka Homo. It's originally called Eka Homo, Behold the Man. They have now translated it to Eka Mono, Behold the Monkey. <laughs> the infamous image, which has already been restyled in dozens of ways, is featured in an art exhibition in Barcelona, is now imprinted on t-shirts, mugs, etc. But I think that this is a pretty nice illustration, really understanding what it means to make a difference and to have the delta, uh, making sure that you've created something that wasn't there before or, uh, or has an improvement. And so that's, that's it, takeaways, problems and solutions that we face, face these days as opposed to 10, 20, 30 years ago are much more connected. We have to learn to collaborate. Uh, collaborating using IP will continue to increase dramatically. So the skill set along with coll collaboration has to grow as well. Uh, the concept of sharing is built into solutions. The concept of sharing is actually also built into intellectual property rights themselves. However, inefficiencies and complexities are also built in. It's not, not easy to trade, not only in the value proposition, but also in the legal right. Accessing, I'm sorry, assessing IPR in context is the key to asserting its value. Understand what it's worth for the certain situation that you happen to be in, and you change something, the value will change. Sharing value is critical to negotiation and collaboration. <coughs> it's a much different negotiation than if I ask you to pay 30 euros per unit on what it is that I offer versus saying 30 is mine, 70 is yours. That context is always multifaceted, so you need a team to be able to assess what that is. So work in a team and get advisors. And that is it. I hope that uh, it's been uh, informative, somewhat entertaining, maybe a little bit long, but at least you can get an idea that I, I, I think this is important for you because I think that you guys are going to be encountering more and more in your businesses property rights, either the opportunity for yourself or you're going to come across someone else that has rights that you might want to partake in. And you need to understand how to approach that, how to value what you have to offer, how to value what they have to offer, and come to a good, uh, come to a good agreement. And I hope I've given you a little bit of inspiration in that direction. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be here.